Hi, this is John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. In this week's episode, I had a chance to sit down and chat with UMass hockey radio analyst Brock Hines. We discussed UMass's rise to the top of the college hockey world, culminating with the school's first ever men's hockey championship at the Frozen Four in Pittsburgh. Hope you enjoy the episode, and please join me next week as I'll be joined by another special guest, the longtime radio voice of UMass Lowell Riverhawk Hockey, Bob Ellis. So sit back and enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. everyone, welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. I'm delighted to have you with us. I'm John Leahy, and it's great to be back with you. Uh, I took last week off. There was no podcast. Some folks might be wondering why. I actually had uh, my second uh, COVID shot last week, so I wanted to uh, take a little bit of time off just to uh, work my way through that. I had heard about the possible side effects with the second shot. As it turned out, things went well. I only had some arm pain, which was uh, quite uncomfortable. But aside from that, everything went well. So uh, we're back this week. And uh, I want—I also want to thank my most recent guest. Two weeks ago, we had my color commentator at Merrimack College on, Mike McMick, as we uh, previewed the Frozen Four. There was some great information there. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, I encourage you to do that, as well as all the previous episodes that we've done here. But uh, my chat with Mike was right before the Frozen Four, and now the Frozen Four has come and gone. And I think there's no better person to talk to on this week's episode of the podcast is a gentleman who is a colleague of mine. He's a great friend, and uh, he was a part of something historic in Pittsburgh back on April 10th at the University of Massachusetts for the first time ever in school history, winning the NCAA Men's Ice Hockey Championship. We're talking with uh, my good friend today. He's the uh, radio hockey analyst for UMass Hockey, Brock Hines. And uh, Brock, you know, I know we've had you on the podcast before, but uh, I thought this would be a great time to reconnect and uh, Boy, I'll tell you, there's not much going on in your life right now, huh? No, not much, John. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, and if I'm following up Mike Macknick, then uh, I've got my work cut out for me because he has a wealth <laughs> of information. But uh, congratulations for you for getting the uh, the vaccine. And uh, I joined you last week. I waited until Pittsburgh was over. So uh, like you said, I didn't want to uh, have any side effects out there. So uh, good for you. 
All right, Brock. Well, certainly there are a few items that uh, I thought we'd touch on today, but obviously the most important one and the most uh, exciting one was the championship for UMass. Uh, the Minutemen going to Pittsburgh and really taking care of business, winning a couple of games and uh, winning the national championship for the, for, for the first time. You know, there's so many things that I could talk to you about this, Brock, but why don't we start uh, with uh, your personal thoughts on UMass's first championship. You've been at UMass uh, for a long, long Long time. Obviously, this is uh, something new for you. And uh, just walk me through uh, your personal thoughts on the uh, Minutemen Championship. Well, John, uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's it's the end of the sleeping giant uh, era, finally. And uh, UMass has finally realized its potential. And I think uh, anybody who's followed this program and uh, knows why we won the championship, uh, it, it's because of the coach. Um, really when we were there, the Minutemen were there two, two years ago or the last NCAA championship when we lost to Minnesota Duluth, um, you could see how we've progressed, uh, as far as the common denominator and that's Greg Carville. Um, and if people had asked two years ago and even last year before the pandemic had, I mean, do you think you can get back to the finals? I, you know, I have to be honest with you. I mean, I was unsure. Again, remember, I'm conditioned as a UMass hockey broadcaster of a quarter of a century of uh, not being able to, to get <laughs> very far and only making an NCAA appearance before that. So um, uh, Greg Carville did a, just an unbelievable job to talk about the championship, John. Um, when you consider that you can see that if you're a UMass fan, you're feeling good about um, plugging in different players and you're going to still have success. I mean, you lose Cal McCarr, Mario Ferraro, the first go around as two top guys last season. You lose John Leonard, Mitchell Chafee, and you just wonder coming into this year, you lose guys of that caliber. How, and then not to mention the guys that graduated, how, how are you going to reload quickly? Uh, you know, and, and we did reload quickly. Um, it, it's just putting players in the right place. And to repeat what Greg Carville said, John, it's having character guys in there and finding the right guys to fit. I mean, there's no, there was nobody specific on this team in my eyes. You could say Bobby Trevino, maybe, um, that you would want a key on. You don't think of Carson Gusevich. I mean, 17 goals leading the league in, in goal score, but you, you, you don't really he, – he's not the one that jumps out of you as, as one of those guys like a John Leonard who put up, you know, 20 uh, goals or so. So I think that was one of the cool things about this team is you were defending against lines, and our fourth line was the MVP line of this season. Uh, did so much uh, as far as providing depth, never mind what they offered offensively uh, and defensively to offset other lines. So – um, this championship, it's just finally getting there. We've always had good players, but we now have a coach that was able to get us over the finish line. Well, you know, it's certainly exciting uh, from a Hockey East perspective. I know uh, we were all rooting for you, and it's great to have the title back in Hockey East. But, Brock, I'm wondering if you could describe for us the feeling that you had as that clock was winding down and you realized this is going to happen. What, what kind of emotions were you feeling in the broadcast booth? It was pretty even, John, believe it or not. I, um, you know, 
I don't want to say I kind of expected this, but what I told other people in some other interviews is I said I, I, I don't like making predictions, but I, I said that I believed going into this week, that past weekend, that Thursday's game against Minnesota Duluth was going to be, in, for all intents and purposes, I thought going to be the more challenging game. No disrespect to St. Cloud uh, or Minnesota State, but I just thought that based on what we saw before and uh, what I – you know, I've seen of them three or four times this season. I thought they'd be the tougher one. Um, so two minutes and 17 seconds to answer your question, John. I looked up at the clock, and it said 2.17. And even though I knew earlier in the game that it was probably going to happen, that's that that's when it hit me. Mm. And I just got kind of got this warm feeling uh, just – in my in my stomach, it was just a good warm feeling. Just looked up and I believe there was a whistle at two seventeen. I'd have to look. I just remember seeing two one seven on the clock, and I go, "Wow, mm. this is actually this is really going to happen." And at that point, the game was decided. Really, it was decided earlier in the third period. But it's funny, John. Even with that said, you, that that's when you knew it was really safe that they're not going to put up you know three goals in a minute and a half. And there was no indication that they were in that game. Uh, uh, after the first five minutes where I thought that UMass came out flat, um, they dominated. And um, that complete top-to-bottom effort. But that's 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 when I knew it, John, was at that point of the third period. Well, I know you can't speak for Donnie, your broadcast partner, but it had to have been a thrill for him as he got to call the play-by-play there at the end. And, uh, you know, I listened to your call in the in the third period of that game, and, uh, you know, you could just feel the energy. And I know it, it must have been special for Donnie as well. Donnie had a great call. And one thing I want to say about Donnie is uh, everybody keeps referencing me being here 28 years and all 28 years. Donnie's, uh, yes, Donnie's made two tours here, but he's been here for over half the time that I have been here. He's been here for, by my count, I think it's 15, 16 seasons. So um, he's been through a lot too. And and he went through, uh, there's been several low points, but he went through the very bottom the last year of the previous regime and then the first great Carbill year, a couple, you know, eight and a five win season. So He's he's seen it too, and I I think I can speak for him. I know he's very he's very satisfied and uh, very happy. And um, the one thing I, I know he'll agree on with me, uh, on, I can say it for him is that the the difference obviously is is the coaching without question. Well, that's a perfect segue, Brock, into my next thought. Uh, you mentioned Greg Carville earlier. And uh, I'd just like to touch on the growth of the program under Greg and, and his vision and how you saw that vision, how you've seen that vision unfold from when he got here to the culmination a couple of weeks ago. Well, it, it's funny when he got here. Um, what Donnie and I had an interview set up uh, with him when he first arrived here, and one of the things he, he kind of inferred uh, to me in our first conversation was he's, he said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of, of the people that are, I mean, it, it, it can't, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, John, but even so many words said he, he wanted to find his character guys sooner than later. And the guys that didn't want to play or weren't playing up to standards that for the little scouting he did, I think he, scouted around and saw 
That's why if you followed this team in the first couple of years, there was such a massive turnover of players. Not right. that all of them were not character guys, but he he had something specific in mind. I think he wanted most every guy that would be his recruit. Now, yes, Kale McCarr was not his recruit, for one example. Uh, that was John Micheletto's. But, um, but he got Kale McCarr to stay because Kale McCarr was a flight risk. And so I have to, you know, I give him credit, but, you know, he, he gives the previous regime credit for break for some of those players um, coming in. But as he worked along, he just had this steady vision of plugging in players that were going to buy into his system, whatever that system was. And even though John, I guess it appeared to be an offensive system when you have guys like Kale McCart on defense and Mario Ferraro racking up points, it's really a system that, all along is built on defense. Right. Um, you may think that it's offense, and you see John Leonard, and you see McCarr with end-to-end rushes, but it, the defense are a component on both ends, in the offensive zone, and uh, one that left today and signed with Nashville, Mark Delgaizo, he was the epitome of, um, of being the best at breaking out the, the puck out of the zone and then of zone entry, knowing what to do, whether it was to give off, whether it was to dump in, um, whether it was to shoot on net. Uh, Mark Delgaizo was, I thought, over the last, in this uh, three-year tenure at UMass, I thought he was probably one of the most underrated defensemen. You could say, well, how could that be? His first year was, uh, you know, he had great stats. And, but a lot of people say that that was because of Makar, and I don't, I'm not certain I agree with all that. But even though he got, didn't get his first goal of the season to almost the end of the season, John, this season, this past 2021 season, he was truly one of those underappreciated guys. And uh, I yeah. just think guys like Del Gaizo really, uh, you know, made it happen. And, you know, that goes back to a uh, structure that our our mutual friend Mark Dennehy always believed in. You build a championship team from the net out. You had two great goaltenders in Lindbergh and Murray, and uh, you get Lindbergh back for that championship game, and he didn't miss a beat. No, he didn't. People asked, that was one of the big questions, uh, is after Murray played a heroic game on Thursday against Minnesota Duluth, they said, you know, is there a goaltender question? And there wasn't. I think you, you play the best goaltender available, and uh, the stats said that it was uh, um, that it was Lindbergh, and you don't drive him out eight hours uh, to sit on the bench and watch. It was pretty obvious that he Good was going to start. Yep. And um, I just think if he if he did wasn't injured earlier in the season, I think he would have been a lock for uh, for the best goaltender in the nation. I just think that the I think people consider it to be too small of a sample size. It may be a 950 or whatever he ended up with it for a save percentage. Maybe maybe that was skewed a little bit, but I think he would have ended up in the 940s playing a full season. Uh, he's that good. Um, I've had several opposition coaches tell me that he is that good, and uh, um, I think it was, it was proven. And, and again, it goes back to what you said, John, building it on defense. Defense and goaltending – um, you know, it, it it felt like the Ravens of football. It felt like the New Jersey Devils, not so much with a trap, but just building it on defense. And uh, that brought, again, to the minimum over the finish line. 
Well, you know, I want to talk about that semifinal game too, Brock. Uh, you wound up beating Minnesota Duluth in overtime, and that had to have been special. You played uh, Duluth out in Buffalo in the championship game in 2019. You get another crack at the Bulldogs, and you wind up beating them in overtime. How special was that to uh, be able to exact that revenge on UMD? That Again, to me, that that was the toughest game of the whole Hockey East NCAA playoff run, um, no question about it. Um, got the first goal. I think it was Zach Jones scored. Uh, our, the power play kind of faded a little bit, and uh, the Minutemen got a power play goal. But then uh, UMass found themselves down 2-1 uh, to one going into the third period. So, I mean, certainly you're, you're worried. But um, then enter the fourth line that I just talked to you about. Anthony Delgazo got the tying goal uh, midway through the third period. And... I have never seen John. I, you know, here's here's the thing about that game, and I, maybe a lot of your podcast listeners will also call me crazy, like many others have. <laughs> um, but I will tell you that I truly, to this day, still believe that five overtime North Dakota win took something out of that team. Whether it didn't show itself into the third period, I know they're young kids. I know they've. When growing up, I did this myself growing up, John. I skated three games in a day, yep. and the next day I could go out and skate again. But it's not just that. I just think mentally as that game went on, and Del Geizo scores to tie the game, and we get late in that third period, I think these guys are probably saying, oh, no, here we go again, another overtime game. Um, mental fatigue affects you physically. I've played sports enough to know that, and i got to think – that that ran through the Bulldogs' mind at some juncture. Yeah. It had to have. Look at the third. I've never seen a team look like they were on the power play for an enti- almost an entire overtime. Absolutely. Until the 1430 mark when they scored, Garrett Waite scored. The shots were, I think it was 13-2 to two in that overtime. And one of the shots hit the side of the net. It was very scary for a quick moment there on uh, Matt Murray. But Matt Murray... He was just sitting there watching the whole time. Yeah, uh, I've never seen a team in a overtime period uh, at any level dominate like UMass did. And it wasn't a question to me of of uh, which team was going to score. It was just who on UMass was going to score it. And ironically, it's a former uh, Minnesota guy, a guy from Edina, Minnesota. Um, scoring against a uh, Minnesota-based team, so that was kind of nice. Yeah, you know, interesting theory, interesting analysis, Brock, and, you know, you could. Uh, I agree. I think that uh, you kind of saw that game starting to slip away uh, from Duluth, and, uh, you know, UMass just, uh, it goes to their conditioning as well, how strong they were at the end, and then they were able to finish it off, so... Uh, you know, certainly, certainly a big win for the Minutemen to get to that final against St. Cloud. But I'm curious, Brock. Uh, now, as we look ahead to next year into October, uh, there will be a banner to be raised at the Mullen Center next year. And, and gosh, I hope that I'll get to the pandemic in a minute. But certainly, I hope that UMass Nation and Minuteman Nation will be able to be in the Mullen Center to see that historic uh, achievement. I hope they will too, John. And. Uh... Uh, if they're able to, that place will be a uh, will be the hottest ticket uh, uh, around to get to see it. But I'm with you. I, I hope uh, uh, hope the good Lord willing that we're able to do something over the next four to five months, where a at minimum a sizable amount of, of a crowd is able to get into the Mullen Center to see it, John. It's uh, that will be a that will be a really 
really cool moment. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic, Brock, and I'm curious to get your thoughts. How did you feel college hockey managed it, you know, both from a hockey's level and perhaps from a national level? And I, I think UMass did pretty well with it. You guys did have a, a brief stoppage, but all in all, you wound up playing a lot of games. How did you feel that the college hockey uh, environment managed the pandemic? I thought they did pretty well. There's obviously, as you know, John, a couple of different approaches. Um, whereas Eastern hockey um, didn't have a bubble per se, but we certainly, uh, well, you know it firsthand from a moment's notice. I mean, what did you have? Like, a, Did you even have a 24-hour turnaround on one of your games where you even switched opponents within 24? Is that right? Yeah, we were supposed to play Vermont, and we wound up playing Boston College instead. I think we texted about that when it happened, but uh, yeah. But, but that was less yeah. than 24 hours, right? I mean, that's how quickly you're... One of the advantages you have playing Hockey East, you're able to do it. Even the AC, ECAC can't do that. I mean, yeah. if you had to go from, from Dartmouth down to Princeton, that's that's quite a haul, but um, the nice thing is, is to go from North Andover and, uh, you know, instead of going one direction you just head down uh, 93 and you're in boston right so, right um that's an advantage hockey's had i still thought the league did, did a good job and out in the midwest i know the nchc had a bubble and, and and that seems to work too um i think i don't know I've, I've thought about this i think if i think if college hockey had a do-over they might i don't know if they would have but they might have thought about maybe playing the whole thing in Pittsburgh, the NCAA tournament in Pittsburgh, right. just like basketball did in Indy. Um, that way, you wouldn't have avoided the St. Lawrence thing, obviously, but maybe there was ways that we wouldn't have had a couple of teams drop out. So I'm not sure. Well, then also, also Brock, you've, you've got to be concerned with the Penguin schedule as well. That That's that's part of maybe the, the reason why that wasn't considered as seriously as it might have been. Yes, probably that would be the case. Um, I don't know. I don't pretend to know the the arenas around there. If it's like there is basketball where there's several courts, but yeah, there's no uh, the uh, the basketball isn't played where the Pacers play the NBA entry there. So I, um, so yeah, the the Penguins thing. But still, um, having said all that, I, I still give hockey a, a high grade on it. I give the teams a very high grade. I know some of them had a more difficult time than others. I know, I know Maine did uh, certainly playing all their games on, on the road. I know Boston university, Boston university did just getting out of the gate and playing games. Yeah. In fact, I talked, you know, I talked to Bernie and uh, when we played BU that weekend and they didn't allow Bernie to travel at all on the road. No, you know, it's a, I don't want to get off subject here cause I'll go in different, different directions, but don't think for a moment, I didn't realize how lucky I was as a person to be able to witness yeah. last weekend. I just want, I want to jump and get that in yeah. before I forget. Um, going back to your original question, though, I thought everybody did well, and some people have asked me also about, you feel like there's an asterisk by this season, and I go, hardly. Absolutely you can, not. You can, yep. you can put 10 asterisks by it, and then under the 10 asterisks as a, as a, as a guide, you can put on there that they – each team managed to make it through the most challenging times. And I would say this was a harder championship to win than any other. So anybody that wants to put a faux asterisk by it, go ahead. I, I couldn't disagree with those people more. 
And how about Steve Metcalf? You know, he steps in, Brock, as the Hockey East commissioner, and boy, he's he had a lot of juggling to do, and he and Brian Smith in the office, what a tremendous job they did at Hockey East. And, uh, you know, you really can't say enough about the job they did. Every time something was presented in front of them, Steve and Brian, they reacted and, and kept the kept the schedule, I mean, uh, fluid and uh, eventually made the, the the right decision to just take the schedule week by week. Um, I, they created a different uh, set of standings uh, and and did all of that and kept everything relevant. So um, that that was that was an unbelievably difficult job they had and thankless. And I don't think people realize how difficult it is to try to keep everybody uh, happy in that situation. So yeah, I tip my cap to them. They they. Uh, they, they really did the best job that they could uh, under some extremely difficult circumstances, to say the least. And Brock, I think we all grew as broadcasters, right? Because we had we had to modify how we do our job. There was the, the social distancing aspect of it. There was the mask wearing. And of course, uh, you know, at Merrimack, uh, we, we did not uh, travel with the team last year. So I think it was, you know, um, we we kind of grew in a way and and kind of added to our skill set a little bit. We didn't prefer it, but uh, you know we we had to we had to modify the way we do our job as well. Yeah, no question. Uh, we had to call some games remotely, although Donnie's living room was very comfortable. He had a popcorn <laughs> machine yeah. from his baseball team. I mean, everything was all set up. But in all seriousness, um, I liked. I thought we everybody did a good job, the best that they could, John. Um, I would say one of the things that you and I miss, I, I know that um, you and I, and I don't know how many other broadcasters in Hockey East and in college hockey get to do this, but both of us in, enjoy the part. I know it's one of my favorite parts of the game is interviewing the opposition coach before the game. Yeah. I didn't get to do either. I had to, I got to interview Greg Carville, but that was all done over Zoom. And I'll do respect to Zoom and how you know wonderful of a tool it is. It's not the same as seeing a coach 45 minutes before puck drop and having that privilege to get their thoughts on what they thought was going to go on. To me, that was not only a privilege, it was just fascinating just to see how different coaches react and, and very honestly to make, uh, make some friends, if you will, along the way, that's not in the job description, but you get to see these coaches so often and inevitably you get talking before the mic goes, uh, goes live or after the mic goes dead and, just talk about some personal stuff and um, all the coaches were good from Scott down at, at your school, uh, Scott Bork, uh, um, you know, Jim Madigan, every one of them offered something. I can, I can tell you a story about each one of them. Yeah. So I just think of those guys all being uh, um, real class guys. And uh, so I, I, I miss that part the most is going in and, and talking to the coaches. Well, Brock, let me let me ask you for a gut reaction here. Uh, do you think we get back to normal in twenty twenty one twenty two, or as close to, no- to normal as we possibly can? Closer. Yep. Closer, but I don't think uh, I had this discuss. I, I can tell you exactly what I said last March. I said in twelve months, not a real lot's going to be different. I, I presume I, I didn't know where we'd be, like in a vaccine or any of this stuff. But I said. In reality, I just can't see anything that's going to make things normal. Um, and it depends what we feel and how we feel as a society, John, as yep. being normal. Yep. Um, for instance, uh, just even for the fun of it, pretend that a, even a little more of us were a little may, maybe more either 
able to have the vaccine, enthusiastic to have it, whatever, however you want to describe it, even if 80%, because you'll never get 100%, but even if 75 or 80% of the people are vaccinated and they say that it's safe, there's that 20% and there's going to people still be wearing masks. And I think just to err on the side of the ca- uh, caution, I think schools will and should probably keep, like I said, guys like you and I out of the locker room area, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we see it on collegiate and professional sports. We see it on TV where they have the extended microphone. I don't think we're not going to be, we're not going to be allowed that access. I don't believe John, but as for the, for the fans, um, Time will tell what percentage of fans will be able to populate hockey East and college hockey buildings. I, uh, um, I don't think 21, 22 will be the season. I think we're, I think it'll be better. Um, but we will still not be at the end by any means. My prediction. Okay. I would love to be wrong, John, but I, I just think that there'll still be a, a lot of, uh, uh, things in place to, keep everybody safe, which is kind of code for. I don't think we'll be there yet. All right, Brock. And of course, the last uh, aspect of the pandemic uh, that I wanted to touch on was the transfer portal. And of course, the NCAA now is extending uh, their um, an extra year for everybody who played uh, this year, the waiver. Uh, now, uh, you don't have to sit out a year anymore. You can You can just go from team to team. We're seeing a record number of players in the portal. You guys have seen it already as Oliver Chow uh, has departed for Quinnipiac. So really, Brock, this is, uh, this is unprecedented in college hockey. It is. Um, for the pro sports people, it's a, you're really watching the, uh, the, the, you're watching those guys like our age, John, I don't know, watching the newspaper back, you know, for the, in the old trade section, you know, and in the uh, transaction section, it's, uh, you know, keeping an eye nowadays on the Twitter to see who's going where. And as you said, Oliver Chow to Quinnipiac, Philip Laganoff goes up to Burlington. Uh, Matt Murray enters the transfer protocol. Does he come back out? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we already had one player that came out and has a national championship ring that he's probably going to be wearing with a, uh, um, John Franco Casaro, he was in the transfer portal. So, I mean, anything can happen. And uh, um, it, it's a new Wild West, John, isn't it? It's it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Um, I, you know, I'm glad the players, who, who, you know, are able to recoup a year that they, they missed. But it certainly change, changes the landscape for sure. It sure does. We're talking with Brock Hines. He's the radio analyst for UMass Hockey. Minutemen coming off their first national championship as they uh, defeated University of Minnesota Duluth and then St. Cloud State uh, to capture their first national championship. And Brock, I'd like to move on to a subject uh, that certainly is very sad. We found out that uh, Red Gendron, the head coach up at Maine, passed away on April 9th. He actually passed in between days of the Frozen Four. Red passed away at the age of 63. He was golfing on a course up in uh, Orono, I believe. And, uh, boy, the college hockey world was stunned. They were saddened. I, I know I was out uh, for a walk that day, and Mike Macknick texted me and, and told me about it. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for your personal thoughts on uh, Red and his passing. And I know you you have a lot of opinions on it because, of course, Red had some time at UMass. Yeah, um, it, it was hard. I was uh, I was on the phone uh, when I learned about it. Um, my I could my 
I was doing an interview like I am with you now, and my phone was buzzing and buzzing, and I'm thinking, oh God, I hope nothing happened. You know, one of the players, I just or something happened. I just figured it was something game related, and when I got off the phone, I first text I read, and I, uh, yeah, it it was it was really difficult, um, and it's for professional and for personal reasons. Um, you know, professionally, no very few people I've met in this game. And I, I'm not the only one that has this opinion. This is shared by most people that know and are familiar with Red Gendron. I don't think there's a smarter, more brilliant hockey mind guys that has written books. Yeah. Um, does coaching clinics. He did, he did so much for the game of hockey and was just so well respected by his peers with his, of the knowledge of the game. Um, um, you know, he was at UMass for six seasons in a, as an assistant uh, or associate head coach to a uh, to two Cahoon. Um and I'm glad he got to uh, experience a national championship a few times. And uh, you know, glad to see the one at Yale certainly with Keith Elaine. And before he went back to uh, before he went back to Maine, where he first uh, experienced that and. Um, you know, anybody who saw him from the, from afar looked, he, he, he was like the abominable snowman right <laughs> off the red nose reindeer, just this big mean, that's where he, he came across. Um, if you got to sit and talk with him, one, one of the kindest, uh, people that you'll ever meet and most caring person, he wanted to know more about you and wouldn't stop wouldn't go on to the next subject until you answered his question about how's the family, how's this and that. And that was with everybody. Um, and he, he was just a, a good hockey mind. And um, his wife, Jan, I, I still don't know what to say. Um, um, had a chance to talk with her and she's, uh, um, yeah, it, it's just, a, it's a huge loss. Uh, a huge loss for the college hockey world. I know up in Maine, it is um, a huge loss, and I know they're transitioning now, uh, and I'm happy for them up there. But, um, yeah, I not much more I can say just to tell you that he was a, he was truly, truly a great hockey mind and a great person. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously I've, I had talked to Red many times as Merrimack and Maine cross pass. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of the time that uh, I, I, I think it was at Hockey's Media Day. I can't remember if it was uh, there or whether we were in Orono or they were here. But I just remember sitting down and telling Red, you know, about my, my father and the fact that he has Alzheimer's and, uh, you know, he's going through some struggles, and, and I was just struck by his compassion. And, you know, he, from his point of view, I think what's most important to him in terms of, of a hockey club, Brock, is, you know, it's one thing to have success on the ice, but he wants his players to become better men, better people. And he put su- he, he would put such a value on that. And it just completely rounded out my perception of Red and, and how what a great man he was. And I think you're absolutely right. I think this is such such a huge loss. And I really think that, uh, you know, with Red's passing happening in between the semifinal and the final, 
you know, I think he, at, when you guys won it, I think he was smiling down on you and, and it was like, you know, hey, let's play the game. This is how I would have wanted it. No, no question. I, I think that's well put. Um, uh, again, just to underline what I said at the beginning, is, um, and I think you and I would think the same way and anybody else in this world does that, um, you know, I value what my peers say and, and uh, I think, you know, Red will know that, you know, he had a lot of people uh, that really liked him and respected him both. And, uh, um, you know, not everybody can say that in this world, but I, I just know that a lot of people in the college hockey community um, liked him for who he was and also respected him for what he knew. And um, he, uh, you know, rest in peace, Red. Yeah, it won't be the same going up to Orono. You know, he, he's certainly going to uh, cross our minds when we're up there, but uh uh, I'm with you, Brock. I wish his family, you know, and everyone who knew him uh, peace and strength during this uh, difficult time. But uh, looking ahead now, Brock, I, I think one of the things I missed most from this past year was uh, the inability of teams to go to the Garden. You know, the, we, we missed out on the bean pot last year. We missed out on the playoff games at the Garden. And, you know, I, I guess... I guess if there's one sort of downside, Brock, uh, to UMass winning it, is that you didn't have a chance to, to win it at the Garden. But, I mean, it, it doesn't lessen the, the impact of it at all. But I don't know about you, but that's the one thing I'm looking forward to the most once we get back to a certain sense of normalcy is bringing those games back to the Garden and experiencing that again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, that was just the gathering place to see, you know, the final best four teams, the ones that made it through the wars of the Hockey East playoffs, um, get to go down to the garden and, you know, just sit upstairs and just, you know, you and I get to see each other, all the broadcasters do commiserate a little bit, this, that, and watch some great hockey. There's no question. I mean, to get down there and see it was uh, – you know, it was always good. So, um, again, tip of the cap to the to the league to figure out, you know, a playoff format that would keep everybody safe. And they did it by just, you know, having people host. They felt that was the best way to do it. And the this, this single games as opposed to best of three and just doing every little thing. But I agree with you, John. Uh, um, it'll be great when it's time to get back to the garden. And, uh, uh, there's you know, there's no other better place to be uh, in the middle of March than down there. Well, Brock, before I let you go, uh, I got to ask you, you know, uh, how is your uh, summer shaping up? How's the golf game? I know you're a big uh, golfer. Uh, how's that uh, shaping up for you? Well, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, working on a right arm injury, John, right now. So I'm just, I, I played Sunday and probably did no help to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm listed as questionable <laughs> for the next couple of weeks uh, <laughs> on the injury list, but thank you for, for asking that. That's uh what helps keep the uh, off-season sanity going is I enjoy the golf game and like you, I mean, I still follow the college hockey. The obviously we'll have the chance to follow the NHL well into uh, uh, the summer this year, but uh, just looking to see what's going on. And I think UMass is one of the last ones to do it, but looking to see how our schedule um, shapes out. The first thing I found out about our schedule is that I'm spending New Year's Eve and New Year's Day in Schenectady, New York. So, wow. Um, that yeah, that was a that was an interesting find right off the bat uh, to play a, a couple with Union. Um, so that's always one of my favorite parts is to see the schedule form uh, 
from other schools and kind of get an idea of who we're going to play. And that's the other thing too, John, um, we should mention is, you know, we all played league opponents. Um, and in one, in one sense, I love the games that mean something, but still it's, it's fun every once in a while, whether it be to travel or to have somebody come, uh, come East. It's just nice to have a little bit of out of conference play early on just to get your feet wet and just to see some different teams. And I, I missed that this year too. totally understand why we did, but um, it'll be interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure that the capital district was my first choice, <laughs> but uh, a lot of good, the best. a lot of good food out there though. I'll tell you, I've spent a lot yeah, of time out there. Yeah. No, there's, so there's plenty of good places to eat there. And uh, there's, there's obviously there's entertainment there too. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll find, we'll, we'll figure things out. Once we get out there and uh, um, so we'll see how things go. But uh, yeah, I look forward to the schedule and for, I'm already waiting to, uh, to get rolling for uh, October of uh, 21. Let's, uh, let's move on, John. Yeah. The only thing I know about our schedule is that union will be here Thanksgiving weekend. So we're not going to have the uh, Turkey leg uh, tournament as we've had over the last uh, year or two, but uh, I'm with you, Brock. I'm I'm looking forward to, to the schedule coming together. And, and oh, by the way, I'd also be remiss if I didn't uh, send a shout out to Jillian Jacuba, who uh, joined in the celebration. And I saw some of her posts on social media. Boy, I tell you, I I'm so happy for her, and and she looked like she was ecstatic uh, at the whole uh, championship run. Yeah, I just had a chance to to talk with her on Friday. She was saying, you know, I've called a bunch of people and whatever. And she goes, the first person that I really met when I came here was you. And I haven't had a chance to, to talk and could tell she was, you know, obviously uh, uh, extremely happy. And I, I couldn't be happier for her. It's got to, you know, if you if anybody, John, uh, doesn't know the work of what a sports information director does, and they usually have more than one sport they're in charge of, they should really ask another sports information director or read about it. They um they are up all hours of the night, as you know, John. Many of them. Yep. Uh, I know she's been up on game nights to three, four in the morning, writing her stuff up, and getting three hours of crappy sleep, just to turn around and start all over again. It's an yep. extremely um, time demanding job, and uh, um, and I'm very I'm extremely extremely happy for her and uh, for. Um, being able to experience this. And we also have to mention Adam Frenier as well. He's the fourth member of your team, uh, if you include uh, Jillian and, and Donnie and yourself. And uh, I know, uh, you know, Adam, he's had a lot of uh, work he's done out there at UMass. And for him to uh, be able to experience the uh, the championship, that had to be special as well. Adam deserves it. Uh, I know for like one of our first games uh, that Donnie and I did, or at the time that out, Right around that time, but going back to 2000, you know, Adam started at the University of Massachusetts. He board opt board opted one of our games, and then worked his way up. And uh, Adam is an invaluable piece to not only UMass uh, hockey broadcast, but um, to the basketball and football programs as well. And uh, um, the fact that he was able to get out to Pittsburgh, uh, I'm really happy for him because uh, he is a really capable guy that can do any sport basically. And uh, I'm really, really glad that uh, he was able to experience that. It's well-deserved, again, because of uh, what he does, not only for us, but for, uh, for UMass in general. Well, Brock, we're we're running against the clock here, so uh, we'll uh, wrap it up. And you know, it's 
sad that we are wrapping it up because you're the kind of friend that I can talk to for hours upon end uh, talking about college hockey. And, you know, I know we've uh, we've done some baseball games together, and uh, it's been a real privilege for me. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in the fall. But I can't uh, thank you enough for spending your Tuesday afternoon uh, with me. And uh, I know our listeners are going to be extremely uh, excited to hear uh, your perception of what happened out there in Pittsburgh. So congratulations again, Brock, on the championship. Thanks for spending some time with us, and uh, I know we'll be talking very soon. John, always love coming on with you. You're a true uh, a true pro, and uh, uh, again, thanks for having me on and letting me uh, share my feelings. Uh, um, do a great job on this podcast, and uh, keep up the good work. All right. He is Brock Hines, radio hockey analyst for the UMass Minutemen. And uh, we're going to wrap things up for today, and we'd like to invite you to join us next week on the podcast, and uh, we'll have another special guest. Uh, I haven't narrowed it down yet, but uh, we will we will have another show for you next week. So you've been listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room, and we will talk to you next week. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.